0: Dr. Eldon Trueblood, who was uh, president of Wheaton College and graduate school for many years, uh, once uh, wrote a paragraph on marriage that I have not forgotten for 25 years, which is when I first read it. He said, marriage is not a system in which two people perfectly matched find each other, and then because of this initial perfect matching get along very well. He said, rather marriage is a system in which two imperfect and sinful people are caught up by a vision so much bigger than themselves that in spite of repeated disappointments, they work to translate that vision into reality. Let me repeat that again. Marriage is a system in which two imperfect and sinful people are caught up by a vision so much bigger than themselves that in spite of repeated disappointments, they keep working to make that vision into a reality. And we have been in this journey of understanding God's blueprint, building what that vision for marriage looks like by looking at the very first marriage. It happened to be the very first couple that God created. And here's what we've learned so far. We learned that it is set in the context of mission, that that husbands and wives are God's vice regents to rule and subdue creation for the benefit of humanity and for the glory of God. We learned that this requires a commitment of permanence that marriage is not a contract that we can back out of, but a covenant set in terms of loyalty. Uh, this covenant was sealed by the sexual union, which is also a metaphor of a much broader intimacy between two people. A spiritual, emotional, and intellectual, so that we can complete one another and grow in our understanding as God's vice regents. And finally, we learned that it is set in the context of the pursuit of holiness and intimacy with God. Last week we learned that even man's sinful uh, assertion of autonomy from God did not change God's plan for uh, God for His blueprint. We realized that He continues to drive us to Himself by uniquely designing marriage amongst uh, like no other relationship uh, as an invasion of our privacy, revealing our lovelessness, and as a result calling us to change and grow at the very core of our beings. That's as far as we got last week. Today's message is entitled, Building According to the Blueprint, but as I put this message together, I realized that we're still not in the tools part of it, okay? That you're going to continue to get in the marriage course and others, uh, marriage enrichment seminars and books that you can read. Because this, this thing that I want to focus on today, this very first ingredient, if you will, or dimension of building according to this blueprint, also happens to be part of the blueprint itself. The Apostle Paul, and for those of you who may not know the background, he was the probably the greatest early champion of the Christian faith, preaching all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey today. And he wrote a letter, a circular letter, to small groups of Christians scattered all over that place. And in a city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Izmir, he wrote these words. For this verse that we should know by now if you've been listening to the last two sermons. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And we have built our blueprint from this verse. And then all of a sudden he says this. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now when we hear the word mystery we almost think in terms of the modern day detective novels. You know where clever detectives amass all the clues and eventually find out who done it you know. But when the Bible uses the word mystery, that's not what it means at all. When the Bible speaks about mystery, it speaks about some truth or some aspect of life that no matter how many detectives you put on the job, no matter how brilliant they are, and no matter how long they analyze it, they would never be able to break through to it. It is truth that has to be revealed by God to us. And specifically, he says, this, these verses of scripture that describe that first marriage in Genesis chapter 2, 24, he said they're actually a mystery. What is that mystery? He said marriage is actually a reflection of the union between Christ and his church. It is a mystery because by looking at verse 31, we would never have made the jump to verse 32 by ourselves. In fact, we would have thought it was sacrilege to take the marriage union and say that's actually illustrating Christ's relationship to his church. But if you read through the whole Bible, you will find that it is throughout the Bible in the old Testament where God continually speaks of in a relationship to his people Israel, he's always, or not often, speaks of himself as a faithful husband committed to his wife. And when Israel in her time of rebellion turns away from him in disobedience and embracing the idolatrous practices of the nations around her, God refers to that as an adulterous wife. Now in the New Testament, when all of that which is hinted at and prepared for in the Old comes to its fruition, it is not surprise that Jesus is spoken of as the bridegroom of the church, and Christ and the church is spoken of as the bride. So this analogy is really right throughout the Scriptures. And there are many, many implications of it, but I want to speak only on one this morning, because it pertains most directly to this issue of building according to the blueprint. And that has to do with this issue of grace. It has been the theme of our whole service so far. I want to take the rest of the message to just kind of unpack that in the context of marriage. Many years ago, I did a brief study on, on the evolution of the use of the word grace in classical Greek first and then in New Testament Greek. And you will see the, the richness of the meaning continuing to build. Initially, grace referred to that which was beautiful and, and holy and aesthetic the whole, and, and strong as opposed to that which was weak and, and, and ugly. Then it became used to describe the desire to impart these things of goodness and beauty and grace and strength to others. And then finally it was also used of the actions that were needed to impart this to others. The New Testament writers under the influence of the Holy Spirit took these three concepts and applied them to God. And so God's grace became a way of saying that God himself is beautiful, holy, strong, perfect, aesthetic, majestic and God has this desire to communicate all that he is to his people and he acted in order to be able to do that all of that was captured in the word grace so keep that in your mind and let's come at grace from a different angle now let's look at grace by contrasting it with two other terms justice and mercy justice is giving somebody what we deserve if your teenage son gets a speeding ticket within a month of learning to drive Justice would mean you might have to implement whatever action you said you would implement. If he did this, you might withdraw privileges for a month or for a six month. That's justice. Mercy withholds justice. Mercy simply says to that teenage son in that context, it's okay, you can continue driving, be careful. That's mercy. Now grace, Grace goes one step further. Justice gives them what they deserve. Mercy withholds what they deserve. Grace gives them what they do not deserve. And that in that analogy would be like saying to that son a month later, you're going out on a special day today, you can drive my Mercedes. Justice withholds, justice gives them what they deserve. Mercy withholds what they deserve. Grace gives them what they would never have deserved. Now you put these two meanings together and you see the fullness of God's grace. God's grace is everything that God is in himself that is beautiful and holy and strong and majestic. It is his desire to impart that to his people. It is his actions that he had to take in order to impart that. And he does it all to people who do not deserve it. That's the grace of God. And the supreme manifestation or demonstration of that grace, the Bible tells us, is in the coming of Jesus Christ into this world and His death on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, all of the demands of God's justice were completely and totally satisfied. You see, God cannot just set aside His justice. He has to have a basis to withhold justice while still being just. And that's what Jesus' death on the cross did. It allowed God to exact the punishment that human rebellion required, so his justice was satisfied, and therefore he could withhold that justice from you and me, he could be merciful, and then he could impart to us all these uh, blessings of beauty and truth and grace, and the aesthetic realm in in our lives. Now how do we appropriate that grace? The Bible tells us, and you saw all that hinted at in that beautiful uh, story of the lump, It involves confession, first of all, it involves an acknowledgement, I am autonomous, I am rebellious, I have done these things that are wrong. Secondly, it involves repentance and repentance involves all those things that he said, having to say sorry to mom and having to say sorry to dad and to my younger brother and then taking the ball over and giving it back to somebody else. Repentance is a change of mind and heart that brings action into line with the confession and then there is the reception of that forgiveness not to tuck yourself under the sheet once again but you put your arms on your loving father and then feel his arms all around you and then simply to receive it so confession, repentance and the asking and then the reception of forgiveness these are the elements by which we appropriate the grace of God in our lives this is how Jesus loved his bride This is how he created his bride. This is how he sustains his bride. Because she not only initially responds like this, but continually our relationship with Jesus involves this kind of confession, repentance, asking for forgiveness and receiving it and rebuilding that relationship with him. So now when Paul says in verse 32 that this union between husband and wife is a reflection of Christ and the church, then that says to me that one of the dominant elements in every marriage that accurately reflects this union of Christ and the church must be this kind of grace. This grace that withholds justice in mercy. And this grace that gives what the other spouse does not deserve in that situation. And communicates that which is beautiful, that which is good, that which is strong, That's with this aesthetic. As opposed to that which crushes and minimizes. And as we learned last week, there'll be plenty of opportunities in a marriage to be gracious. Precisely because marriage has been designed by God to invade our privacy and to reveal our bankruptcy and our lovelessness, precisely because we are two little small g gods in marriage, precisely because there are opportunities and reaction for control and manipulation, and you'll hear Because when one spouse responds in any of those inappropriate ways, there's an immediate opportunity for this other spouse to not really respond with justice, but to respond in mercy and in grace. And when they do, then the first spouse, it is his or her privilege at that time to do exactly what that little boy did. To confess what they did was wrong. The repentance, which is a change of mind that says, I'll make whatever restitution is necessary. And then ask for the forgiveness and then happily receive it and begin a relationship that is intimate again. So marriage is to be a continual demonstration of confession, repentance and the asking and the receiving and the reuniting of two people. So that's the heart of what I want to talk about. That's the first element of building the group. Now how do we do it? Where does the power come from for this? Jesus said this, uh, Paul said this in another letter that he was writing to another group of Christians in a Greek town called Corinth. And he says, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now Paul here is talking about the grace of giving money. He's uh, taking a collection from the Gentile churches for the poor church in Jerusalem that has been struck by famine and in need and is in a lot of hardship. But, but it applies to giving anything. Giving this kind of withholding justice, giving mercy, giving grace. That itself comes from Jesus himself. Now how does this work out though? It's one thing to say, it is the grace of God flowing within us and then flows this way. But, but how do we get that? And I want to take a few moments to just spell this out in in the kind of detailed implications that we don't normally think about. See, our normal tendency in any relationships and especially in marriage is to compare and when when there are shortcomings that we become aware of, is to compare and contrast ourselves with the shortcomings of our spouse and make ourselves feel better because we think we're not as bad as they are. But what if we were to pause... To think in terms not of their short our spouse's shortcoming to us, but the gap that really existed between us and God when this grace flowed out to us. Here's an illustration that is inadequate, but we'll get the point. Imagine one of you is a mountain climber, you know, and you climb to the top of Mount Everest. And the other one who doesn't do any such activities like that is still in base camp at the bottom, waiting for you to come back. When you reach the summit, you are five miles above which is a pretty massive distance between the two of you. But, if your goal was to touch the stars, it doesn't make any difference, does it? The the nearest star in our system is 93 million miles away. Now, how much of an advantage is it to be 10 miles above your wife, or 5 miles, if you've got to touch something that is 93 million miles away? It's practically zero. And, if in fact that distance is infinite... Our basic mathematics will tell you that the difference is in fact zero. Both of you are equally far away. Well, that's what the Bible says we are in our natural condition because God is infinitely holy, and if God is infinitely holy, infinitely holy, and if God is infinitely holy, our transgressions have made, if you will, an infinite separation between us and Him. And so, all differences between you and your spouse, when it comes to falling short, are zero when it comes to God. And yet, it was this infinite gap that God's Grace bridged. All I'm asking is, if we could train ourselves to think about that infinite gap between us and God, might it not help to make the gap between us and our spouses just come into a perspective a little bit more? This is where the issue of anger enters in. Anger destroys a lot, a lot of marriages, probably far more than infidelity does. And This anger can be explosive or it can be simmering under the surface for decades. Now the Bible tells us there's a dimension of God's holiness that is described as wrath or anger against our sin. But it's not like our anger. You and I are angry when our goals are blocked in some way. Whether it's a person or a circumstance or a traffic jam on the highway, we get angry when our goals are blocked. But God has goals that nobody can block. Uh, we get angry because people are, people diminish us by certain ways or refuse to give us the credit that we think we need. But God is not diminished when we refuse to give Him credit. God is not augmented when we give Him the credit. Therefore, God cannot be angry in the way you and I are angry. What then does the Bible mean when it says He is angry or the, the wrath of God? It is a way of describing the inevitable consequences when perfect holiness meets imperfection or sin. And if I can illustrate it by one that helped me the most, it's like taking a cold water droplet and dropping it on a hot steel plate. What would happen to that cold water droplet? It disintegrates in a moment, turns into steam and gone. Now nobody in their right mind describing that event would say the hot plate was angry with the cold water droplet. Anger had nothing to do with it. Given the nature of hot steel and given the nature of cold water droplets, you put the two of them in intimate contact, only one thing can happen, disintegration. That comes a lot closer to what the Bible means when it talks about the wrath of God. Here's the amazing thing, folks. Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to quench that infinite anger. Because the Bible tells us that when Christ died on the cross, all of that holy anger and indignation of a righteous God against you and me was poured out on Jesus. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not the pain of the nails that held him to the cross. Other men were crucified, two on either side of him. Hundreds of people were crucified in Rome. There was nothing unique about the physical pain of Jesus' crucifixion. Yes, that's what we usually focus on. The pain was this heart-wrenching pain of separation from a Holy Father that He loved with infinite love. But here's the question. If the grace of God in Christ is able to quench infinite anger, is it not possible that it can quench the anger that we feel in our marriages? I mean, one—is actually? it would be a no-brainer for that grace to swallow up our anger. When it is sufficient to swallow up the infinite anger of God. Let me spell it out even more. Sometimes in our marriages when it comes to this grace giving we say my spouse doesn't deserve it. What are you really saying when you say he or she doesn't deserve my forgiveness? I want you to think of something that Jesus said. Jesus said if you will not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father in heaven forgive you your sins. Now at first reading that sounds not like grace but works. That sounds like Jesus is saying we have to earn our forgiveness from God. In other words, I, I, have to be, I have to forgive you so I can then parade that as my good deed before God and then He can then forgive me. But yet we know that that is contrary to everything that the Bible teaches about grace, that forgiveness is, is, a, is a free gift. So what then is Jesus saying? I think what He's saying is something like this. What He's saying is if you refuse to forgive your brother or your sister, in some way or another you're saying they don't deserve it. Which means your idea of forgiveness is that it has to be earned. Which means you really think that you've earned your forgiveness from God. Which means you haven't been forgiven by God at all because you haven't repented yet. Something like that is going on. In other words, the implication is it is impossible to understand grace. It is impossible to look upon the infinite gap between us and God that was bridged by Jesus on the cross. It is impossible to look at the infinite wrath of God that was swallowed up on the cross. And refuse to be gracious to people. Especially our spouses. Let me take it one more step further. What would happen if your spouse goes to God. And he forgives them. Because they have genuinely repented. And you won't. You know what you are saying at that point? Basically what you are saying is. uh, God can forgive you but I am not going to. What that really means is that you are saying. Your honor is bigger than God's honor. And by that time. You've got a much bigger problem than your spouse does. You've got the extreme form of arrogance and pride that will actually set yourself up above God and say, He can forgive my spouse's sin, but I'm not going to. Just think about it. It is this kind of rigorous argument from the cross that will eventually give us a hope of changing the way in which we think about our spouse's offenses against us, big or small. All the tools that we will get in the marriage course, all the tools that you will get in the books, none of them will work without this advanced commitment to forgiveness. This has got to be settled. This approach through grace has got to be given a foundational uh, element of building according to the blueprint. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is easy. It might, depending on the level of conflict, depending on how long the anger has been simmering, it might take days and weeks and months, and you'll hear about that in a while, to break through to this kind of understanding of what this grace was like. It might take months, years, to settle this relationship. It might take many difficult conversations with your spouse before this whole issue of confession, repentance and asking and the giving of grace uh, will happen. Sometimes those conversations wind you up all over again. And you've got to go all the way back to God one more time. So there may be a cyclical, iterative process involved. But both people, if they are thinking this way, have already settled one thing. <laughs> We're going to get there. We will eventually get to the point where we will be one again in soul and in spirit and in body. Now, uh, precisely because this kind of approach to the horizontal relationships in marriage is so intimately connected with understanding God's grace the way I've talked about. I need to say something here. This approach to marriage will make absolutely no sense to those people To whom the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make sense. Because one derives from the other. And so if you're still at that point in your spiritual pilgrimage. And I don't know all of you that well. Besides the externals may not show what's on the heart anyway. If you're still at that point in your spiritual pilgrimage. Where you haven't yet quite settled these issues of... uh, grace and sin and forgiveness and repentance and confession and what do they really mean and where does jesus fit into all of this why is his death on the cross so important can i really trust the scriptures There are all these questions that are mulling around within you then this understanding of marriage is still going to be a big problem for you and that's okay so start there start there and that's why we have our alpha ministries in this church and so i want to encourage you and that's started last week but last week was just an introduction you can still start this tuesday every tuesday evening from this tuesday for the next nine weeks you'll have an opportunity to come here on Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock, have a nice hot meal prepared for you, listen to a very interesting and challenging video by a man named Nikki Gumbel, who will articulate these various dimensions of the Christian faith for you so you can understand them. You will then have a chance in small groups to explore whatever questions you may have and continue on that pilgrimage. And So we would really, really encourage you, please sign up on the way out and show up this Tuesday, day after tomorrow at, at, nine, at 6 o'clock in the evening. Now, back again for those of us who do understand that there's one more important dimension of grace and with that we'll be finished. So far I've been speaking about the need for grace exclusively in the context of, of conflict and the forgiveness of offenses and sins and those kinds of things. Which is, which is essential because we learned yesterday that marriage by its very nature precipitates those kinds of things. It is intended by divine design to do that. But grace is needed for the completion process, process too. Remember, the mission is central. Once we have forgiven each other, once we have united ourselves with, again in, in that kind of harmony and in peace, there's still work to do. We're still helpers of one another. We still have all those differences that are neither right nor wrong that I talked about in two sermons ago. And and those differences are intended to complete one another. And we need love. We need grace to do that as well. So where where does that dimension fit in? And for that, I want to talk briefly about two different Greek words for love. There are, in fact, four different Greek words for love, all of which are translated love in the English language, and they miss all kinds of important nuances. But the two that I want to speak about today are eros and agape. Eros is the word from which we get the word erotic, and we almost exclusively think of eros love in terms of sexual love that just happens to be the most concrete illustration of what eros love really is. In eros love, the source of the love is also the object of the love. I mean, uh, when I look at my wife and she's dressed in all those clothes and colors that suit her so well and and, and just enhance her radiance, it's easy for me to look at her and say, I love you, sweetheart. She might look at me in those moments when when I am respectable and do all those things that she thinks are important to her. uh, And she might say, I love you when you're kind, when you're gentle, whatever. That's called eros love, where the object of the love is also the source of the love. That kind of love is effortless. There's no problem doing that. Because the person that you have to love is also feeding you that love. And it's good, it's important. We need to appreciate one another for the good things. We lose sight of them after a little while. But, there's another kind of, what, what about when she has to complete me in areas that I'm not good at? It's highly unlikely that my wife will, on too many occasions, find herself saying, in the Eros kind of love, honey, I love you because you're so compassionate. I'm not, she is. What does it mean for her then to love me in those times when I'm not compassionate and I need to become more compassionate? It will mean that she will need to continue to model that compassion, not just to others, but to me as well she will then need to approach me in those times when I could have been more compassionate and withhold justice and criticism, instead be merciful to me in my weakness, and then perhaps paint a picture of what kind of a person I could become by providing me an alternative way in which I could have spoken or written or behaved or what have you. That's agape love. Because in agape love, the source of the love is not the object of the love. My lack of compassion was not inspiring this loving act towards me. That had to come from somewhere else. For as she draws upon the love of God, in her, that's how God treats us. Not only does He forgive us our sins, that's how He continues to move us on in growth and in completion. By gracious giving of that which we could never have. God, God is the source of a completing love. There was nothing in us that called forth the love of God. The Bible tells us, while you were yet sinners... Running away from God, even spitting on His face, He came after us. He pursued us as a hound of heaven, in C.S. Lewis' magnificent phrase. And He pursued us, He awakened us to Himself, He drew us to ourselves. It is that kind of pursuing love that the Holy Spirit of God can pour into our hearts, so that we then can become loving in this way to complete the other person. Eros and Agape are both very critical components. One is easy, Eros love is easy and effortless. Agape love, we need to go to God, who is the source of it. In these two dimensions, therefore, grace is absolutely indispensable to building according to the blueprint. Grace to forgive, grace to give and to receive forgiveness, and grace to complete one another. And Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, puts it this way. This high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. That's why it is in this kind of pursuit we are able to then fulfill this gracious living in the horizontal dimension. But sermons, even when they spell out things in as much detail as I've tried to, need more. They, they need the sermons incarnate in actual lives. And Phil and Debbie Portion are going to come up now, right now, and they're going to share with you this journey where hopelessness turned into hope because of the grace of God.
1: Good morning. About eight or nine years ago, I was so discontented with my marriage, my kids, my job, and my life. It was depressing. And at this point, I observed and declared to myself that the marriage was emotionally dead. There was no tangible sense of hope that we would ever be close again. The feeling of deep despair was overwhelmingly oppressive. It really felt like a death had occurred. What would the future hold for me after this shattered dream? All I knew was uh, there was a lot of pain, and I wanted out of that pain, and I wanted to get on with my life. And I thought the way to do that was with a divorce. It would have made it easier if Devin just left. But then, as I found out later, she said, it would have been easier if I would left. But it was the covenant agreement that we made on our wedding day that kept us in the same house. I realized that if I had broken my covenant agreement, with God through those vows that I might as well break my relationship with God. I wouldn't be able to face him and continue a relationship with him if I left under these circumstances. Yet I really didn't see any solution from my perspective, so I felt trapped. The covenant didn't make a better marriage, but it kept us in the same house, and it prevented me from leaving this marriage and allowing God to do a work in me. Well, I spent the next little while really angry with God for my state of affairs. How he had let me down with my marriage and my kids. I argued that I had done my part. He hadn't done his. And I realized after a while I could dialogue with God like this and, and not get hurt. And that he could handle my anger. I could only imagine God responding, It's about time you started getting real with me. I was moving away from the artificial relationship that I had practiced with him for decades and was moving into a more personal relationship. I always believed that he existed. I just didn't believe that with everything else going on in the world and the universe on his plate that he could have a personal relationship with me as close as a close friend. I didn't have that kind of relationship with him and I just didn't get it when other people said they did. One evening during this crummy time, I was feeling particularly desperate and helpless with my life. I was as vulnerable and honest with God as I had ever been. And in that moment, God blessed me with a gift of his presence in a way that I had never experienced before. The picture that I had was of an infant in distress, thrashing back and forth, really beat red in the face, um, because he was either hungry, wet, terrified, or overtired, someone that just could not be consoled. And at that moment, it felt like God cupped my face in his hands to calm me, and then he focused my face towards his, and he said, Phil, I want to have a relationship with you. This was a vivid, supernatural encounter that still sends a shiver down my back, Imagine God penetrating time and space to assure one of his created beings of his love for them. At this assurance, a physically penetrating <clears throat> excuse me sense of warmth and love washed over me. The effect it had on me was to immediately give me peace, tears of joy, and, and a love that wasn't from me. There were some people in my life at that moment I didn't care for. They had hurt me, and every time I thought about them, I was irritated. I had not been able to forgive them in a way that would give me genuine peace. But at that moment and for days ahead, I was unable to think ill of them because of the residue of love from that encounter. You know, I believe one day we are going to learn how intimately and intricately God is involved with us on a daily basis. When we think he doesn't bother with us or he's not there and we can't feel his presence, he is there. From a human perspective, Deb and I had no hope. But when I could see God starting to work in her and bring about changes in her, then hope stirred in me again. And what I thought was dead, he made alive. God does that. He makes something beautiful out of nothing, and he raises the dead to life for his honor and his glory. The reason we're here together today is because God loved us, and he's jealous for his honor. And we stand as a testimony of his intervention. It's not a work of Phil and Deb but rather our response to his love. Man, some of you like me have declared your marriage dead or you're heading in that direction. Pause for a moment and evaluate your relationship with Jesus. I thought my problem was my marriage. God knew my problem was with him. What kind of talks do you have with him about your marriage? Do you really love Jesus? And if you do, listen to him as he tells you what to do. And I know for many guys that's going to sound downright mystical. How do you listen? How does God speak? Communication with the Holy Spirit comes with practice. How much effort do you give to speaking and listening to the Holy Spirit? Peter instructs us to make every effort to add a bunch of things to your faith, like goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness and love. He, for this reason, he says, for you, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus. Do you know what making every effort is? He didn't say make some effort. He said make every effort. You stop and think about the effort you use to win that spouse. I can tell you that it can be done. I do it now, imperfectly, but, but more than before. And that, that's indicated in his instruction. I keep at it. You keep adding these items and possess them in increasing measure and every day gives you the opportunity to add to this reservoir. If you don't love Jesus deeply, you have nothing but your human effort and your flaws as the only skills. Jesus is a force to be reckoned with because he can change hearts and minds, you and your spouse. You know, one of the selection criteria I had when I was choosing my wife was to make sure that she loved God enough that I wouldn't have to keep bringing her back into relationship with God. And the irony, and God knew this all along, was that Deb has shown me what a loving relationship with Jesus is like.
2: My hope is based on the work of two very important people in my life, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. The rest of my testimony is about what Jesus Christ did on the cross for my marriage. And then what the Holy Spirit did inside me to transform me. And my hope today is that you'll find that same hope. Eight years ago, my marriage was going downhill. And I had to reach out and save it. I was advised by somebody to grab it. Because if I didn't grab onto something, in my case, Jesus and the Holy Spirit... I stood to lose everything I cared about. My kids, my husband, and my Jesus. The Jesus I thought I knew eight years ago is not the same Jesus I know and love today. The Jesus I want to talk about today is the Jesus who wants to give you hope. The hope you need has to come from inside you, from the Holy Spirit. Please understand, Jesus Christ and the holy spirit the gift he died to give us want to work together for you my marriage was on the slippery slope but once i acknowledged my own sin and longed for change i decided to accept jesus as the only person who could help me i began to listen and what i heard was from the holy spirit who enabled me to change my old thought patterns my old attitudes my personality And even the way I talk. Jesus and I went through a lot of tears together. But as a consequence, I fell in love with Jesus. And I fell in love with the Holy Spirit. And today I can say that I fell in love with Phil again. Each of you has your own story, your own heartache, and your own pain. My story has become about how the Holy Spirit brought life to my relationship with Jesus. I talk to Jesus on a moment-by-moment basis in my working life and in my personal life. When I breathe, I breathe for Jesus. When I love, I love for Jesus. And when I walk, I walk with the Holy Spirit. If you want to change, if you want to have hope, hope and friendship in your marriage, you must have Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit battling for you. When that happens and you decide to submit, you will begin to change. You will not wait for your husband to change. It may take a month, it may take two years or ten years, but you will change and he will notice that change. Then when your husband notices that change in you and other people start commenting about it, that's the moment you will realize that everything you gave up for Jesus Christ was worth it all. Jesus did a healing in me. Phil recognized the changes. My desire was to change, but my hope in Jesus enabled me to change. My hope and longing was to have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Phil. And it didn't happen overnight. It took eight years. The first four involved learning everything I could about Jesus and then learning the pivotal role of the Holy Spirit. Um, and experiencing inner healing. But that's why I love to brag about Jesus. And I hope for the same things for you. Without hope, our marriages today will continue to be degraded and we'll continue to be wounded in them. That's what Satan wants. Separations and divorce aren't necessary. Working on our marriages, that's necessary. Now let me address the wives. There's a word I really, really dislike, and when I tell you that word, I think many of you will identify with me. It's a word that we women do not like being accused of, and it's a word that I've heard husbands use about their wives. It's the word control. Eight years ago, I was in control. I thought I was doing a fine job in my home and my kitchen. Why would I think of giving up control? I controlled the raising of our sons because I was convinced that my ways were right. Why would I give that up? I, not Jesus, had control in my marriage, but the outcome was not good. If that's true of you, even a little bit, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. If your husband accuses you of controlling where you go, when you go, who you'll have over, what you'll have to eat... Even if it's something really, really small, it's a sin. And I know that that's really hard to accept because none of us women, particularly wives, like to think that we control people. Instead of control, though, let Jesus fill you with the word hope. Hope when you talk with your spouse. Honey, I hope we can spend some time together. I hope that we can pray together. I hope, honey, that you will love Jesus and the Holy Spirit the way I do, because they are what make my life worth living. Then hope that you will bring your kids into relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. For even though Phil and I worked on our marriage and God has sovereignly seen to heal it, what did our kids go through while we were struggling? So it's, Hope not only for your marriage, it's hope that your kids will develop a friendship with Jesus Christ like you've found. So forget control and exchange control with friendship. First, friendship with Jesus, and then friendship with the Holy Spirit. Friendship with your spouse and friendship with your kids. When you do that, you will experience what real hope is really about. But more importantly, you will then understand what Jesus Christ was giving us when he went to the cross. He wasn't trying to control us. He was hoping that we would come to him. Thank you.
0: We have kept the pastoral prayer deliberately at this point in the service because we want to pray now for that grace. And as I pray, I would just encourage you, no matter where you happen to be uh, in this spectrum, where you are in your marriage, to, to reach out for that grace because he's here. And I want to specifically say a word to some of you who, who wished you had known all this earlier. You, you, have a, you have a broken marriage in your background. You know what? That hasn't disqualified you from the grace of God. You don't need to hide like a lump underneath the bed sheet as if you were damaged goods. If you will respond in repentance, if you will go to Jesus, that grace is sufficient to take care of that as well. And to bring complete newness so that you begin all over again where you are. And if if you're in that situation, there's hope for you as well. But that hope is found in Jesus. So I'm just going to take a few moments to pray for us. And just simply use my words as a vehicle. And by the way, afterwards, if you want to be prayed for personally, both Deb and um, um, Phil will be in our new prayer room, which is over that way on the other side of the green room. And Frank Buchanan, one of our elders, will be there as well. If you as couples want to go and be prayed for, they are available to do that for you privately and quietly as well. But I would just encourage you to to reach out in that prayer. We also just want to remind you at this time of a couple of other uh, family situations that need prayer. Uh, Randy uh, Watson's mother, Mrs. Aileen Watson, passed away on August the 22nd. The funeral was held on August 27th in BC. And uh, Joyce Weeb and her family are here. Abe went home to be with the Lord last Saturday, and we had a magnificent uh, celebration service here on Friday morning. Whereas one, Sham said to me on the way out of, she said, "I I went there thinking we were going to be thinking about death. We had life injected in us instead. You know. We want to pray for their family. And then Neil Porter found out. Uh, that his brother-in-law in in B.C. suddenly passed away with a heart attack, and Neil's parents are already there, and Neil will be heading out today. Neil's one of our elders as well. We want to be praying for them too. So, join me as we pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this abundant grace that has been lavished upon us. That we could take an entire service to think about, to understand, and to respond to such grace. Thank you that this grace is greater than all our sin. That where sin abounds, you said in your word, grace does much more abound. And I pray for that super abundant grace of God now to just be poured out in waves, Father, upon each one of us. You know each of our hearts. You know those of us who are like little lumps on bedsheets right now. Sweating, hiding, fearful, ashamed. Wondering whether God... Other people in our lives will ever be able to love us again. Oh God, I pray that you will grant us the grace of repentance. May we not pull those covers over again if God will open them up. May we be free to acknowledge, as Phil and Debbie have both shown us so clearly, to go to you and to tell us just what we are really like and to acknowledge what you say about us. To acknowledge that the selfishness, the clamoring for justice, the anger, the control, And to release it to you, Father. Knowing it will only destroy us. Reaching out instead for that hope that will free us. And for those in whose lives covenant has only kept the marriage from breaking up but has not saved it, will you honor that commitment, O God? Now, Will you do whatever is needed? Will you precipitate a crisis in Phil and Deb's life? Precipitate a crisis in those lives that will drive them to you with a kind of honesty and urgency and zeal and insistence that you speak that they've never known before. And then just do do exactly what Phil said you did, Father. Pour out your love upon them in waves. And let the deposit of that love then flow out to spouses and to children. And I would pray very specifically, Father, for those who have known the pain of broken marriages in their background. Almighty God, I pray that they will know the God who says, forget the former things, I'm doing a new thing in your midst. And I pray, Father, that they will know also Not the God of justice, but the God of mercy and of grace in their lives. Who from this day forward will walk with them and walk with that Holy Spirit. So that they breathe, they live, and they serve for Jesus. We lift up before thee these who have suddenly lost loved ones, Father. We pray for Joyce and Abe's daughters who gave such a powerful, ringing testimony to their father's love. I pray they may know the sustaining love of Christ and God, our Heavenly Father. The one who promised to be a husband to those who have lost husbands, and who promised to be a father to the fatherless. We pray for the family of uh, uh, for Neil and Leanne, and for their family. May Neil be a source of grace and wisdom and strength uh, to other members of his family during these days. We lift up before the Father Randy Watson and his family as well. God look upon us and these are tip of the iceberg of many many other needs that we're not even aware of and the marvelous infinite matchless grace of Jesus is able to be distilled into each one of them. You are here to cleanse and to heal and to minister your grace and in faith we receive that power from you today and we honor you and as we leave this place oh God may we have that residue of grace and love in us that others whose lives cross our paths will know that we have been in your presence. In Jesus holy name.